Hi there. My name is Jamin Warren, and this is a new podcast called Killscreen. Surprise, surprise. So I started Killscreen almost a decade ago, and since then, I've been an advocate for the space between games, play, culture, and interactivity. This podcast is something new that we're trying. I used to be a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and I really missed having conversations with people at my desk. I'd hunker down, put my headset on, and talk to people all around the world about their creative process. I honestly think that those conversations are the best way to explore new ideas. So our purpose here is to do something a little bit different. We're going to explore play and interactivity in all of its forms. Some of those things will be games, esports, virtual reality, but we're going to look at some other things as well: interaction design, playground design, other spaces of play. Each episode will feature a conversation with me and another counterpart to talk about their work. There are a lot of great two-hour podcasts with really engaging hosts, just kind of shooting the breeze and doing their thing. This is not one of those podcasts. We're going to keep things really short and snappy and focus on the conversation at hand. So please enjoy what we're making and shoot us a note at info@killscreen.com if you have a thought, comment, or question. Say hello to Paula Antonelli, a force in the world of modern art. She's currently the senior curator of the Department of Architecture and Design, as well as the director of R and D at the Museum of Modern Art. One of the things I really love about Paula is she has this expansive view of design. She's pushed the museum beyond just taking in things like Eames chairs into this digital domain that obviously you and I live every single day. Under her guidance, MoMA has acquired everything from the at symbol to typefaces like Helvetica, everybody's favorite, and the original set of emoji that were released in Japan in 1999. In 2012, Paula shepherded the first 14 video games into their permanent collection. That's actually how we met. I had the good fortune of working with Paula and her team in terms of acquiring this first set of games. What was really cool is that Paula and MoMA placed big commercial hits like Pac-Man and Myst and The Sims alongside of these much smaller, more personal work like Jason Voorhees' Passage. Passage is a game about Life, death, partnership—a little bit of everything—and it's really, really different from Pac-Man. I can assure you of that. Paula is speaking to me from her office in Midtown Manhattan. For a long time, the curators at MoMA had been thinking of the digital space as a space where a lot of great design happens. And of course, when you think of digital design. You think of interfaces, of interaction, of typefaces, of visualization design, but video games are exquisite examples of design, and it was important for us to tackle them also because the mission of the Museum of Modern Art says that we are supposed to show to the world and to really. Think of the art of our time, and what's more of our time than video games? So, we started thinking about the need to add them to the collection, and Jamin was、uh, there and available and shining in his knowledge of video games. So, we came to you first and foremost. I think at the time there were very few museums. I mean, I guess there are other museums that kind of like dabbled, but 
they would explore it kind of from the outside as opposed to integrating it into this like larger conversation that was already happening at the institution. Definitely. And, you know, the big difference is that, of course, there were video games in other museums, but they tended to be museums of video games, museum of the moving image, museums of digital culture. The difference and the challenge was that we were talking about an art museum where design was one of the departments. So it was thinking of video games as design, as interaction design within an art museum. So we really had to calibrate our choices in a very uh, fine way. And also we had to figure out what to acquire, how to acquire it, how to show it. It was almost like a tabula rasa. We had to start from scratch. Paola, you have this really interesting history of acquiring unusual work into the museum's collection. And part of that is creating this internal procedure for doing that. So one of the things that I wanted to know was with games, it seems like you were in this uncharted territory. How different was the process of acquiring video games compared to other things that you and the museum have acquired in the past? What made the situation very different was how much we had to deal with lawyers. So it's not only the code, it's not only how to document the interaction, it's not only how to store it, but it's really how to deal with the companies that produce the games, how to deal with copyright owners, how to change the EULA, the end user license agreement that was the bane of our existence. So <laughs> I would say that that, um, that is one of the most interesting aspects of acquiring digital entities, digital objects, that there are so many different parties involved, many more than one would imagine. So I'm not going to just go and say, let's acquire 40 video games, because I know what it means. I know that the lawyers of MoMA will have to spend months negotiating with one of the companies. And I know that my collection specialist will have to deal with the conservators that will have to look at the codes and the emulation. So I like to say to people that code is more fragile than porcelain. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we, we think that we can acquire source code for everything and that's not happening. People don't want to give you source code. They would rather lose it and burn it and have it gone forever rather than giving you the source code or emulations or the hardware. You know, And also, you know, I don't know if you remember when we were discussing how to show the games, that we at MoMA had an idea that we thought you and other experts would be incensed by and you would find it almost blasphemous because we didn't want to have any of the paraphernalia and the nostalgia arcade cabinets. We just wanted to show the video games. We wanted to mimic um, a, sc a screen that was the same size as the original screen and we wanted to embed it on the wall and we wanted it to be not uh, a, a cathodic tube screen but rather we wanted it to be a, a digital screen and we wanted to reproduce the the interface and the only other real thing would have been the controller because that's where the behavior and the interaction flew um, and got to the machine. And we thought that everybody would get really mad and instead you understood that we were trying <laughs> to isolate the interaction, which I thought was great. You know, it's great when you can have this kind of conversation. One thing I wanted to ask about is the importance of having a name or a designer or a person attached to a particular design object. You know, one of the things with games is that they're often perceived as these sort of these faceless objects, like the title of the game. If you ask someone who designed Tetris, they probably 
couldn't tell you if you ask someone who designed Portal, they might be able to tell you. Maybe I understand which, where you're getting at. And, you know, people should start knowing the names of video game designers more because they they are celebrated and they should be celebrated. And I think that um, can be helped by museums like MoMA because all of a sudden there's a label with the name of the person and we let people think about the fact that somebody actually, well, uh, somebody, gigantic teams are behind these video games in most cases. In some cases it's one person, but you know, we know that it's few and far in between. I'm curious how the games that you've taken into MoMA's collection how you think that they'll be integrated in into future shows past, you know, sort of past this conversation that we're having. I can answer you by talking about exhibitions that I'm doing today that use objects that were acquired in 1934. So for instance, one of the objects that we love and that has become almost like a symbol of the MoMA collection is a big ball bearing that was acquired in 1934 that was part of an exhibition called Machine Art. It definitely was a document of the art of that time, sure. But it was also um, a node to the machine. And at that time, modernism really looked to machines as examples of uh, beauty and of functionality. And also, it was a great example of an attitude that has remained in the collection to this day, which is to show parts of objects or objects by themselves that we that are so part of our lives that we almost don't consider them anymore, but that are so important in their beauty. So I am hoping that the video games 50 years from now will still be examples of great and amazing use of the technology of the time. Think of Tempest and the use of vectors, right? I think it will be as stunning 50 years from now as it is today, 30 years after it was designed. You know, so. If you choose carefully, if you pick the best, not just, they stand the test of time as fabulous synthesis of the technology available, the talent of the designer, and the amazing use that was made by people. I'm curious, what do you feel like folks inside the world of games could learn from other things in your design, in, in your design practice? Designers in video games, I don't know if they need to learn much from designers in the physical world. I think that they <laughs> are born in the physical world, so they retain the sense of gravity that, you know, the force of gravity can be useful, especially when you try to set yourself free from it. I think that when you learn the, um, the lack of freedom or the limitations of your existence in the real world, then you can still have a very strong point of comparison in the other world. But then we're talking about a completely blank universe. So whatever rules have been learned in physical life can be applied or not in the world of video games. The most successful ones are the ones that are plausible, though. Mm. I'm curious about the word play and whether that's something that comes into like your language when you're thinking about design outside of just video games. Well, I don't think of play very much. I think of behavior. Behavior to me and interaction. That's the key. Video games are about designing behaviors. You could say that it's the same with a chair, but it's one behavior, maybe two or three, right? But in video games, there's this idea of trying to plan ahead, invite, suggest, guide the behavior of the person. We can call her the player right now. Um, 
And it's the quintessential ingredient of interaction design. That's also what happens when you design the ATM, the interface of an ATM machine or the MetroCard machine. You are planning an action-reaction, a response, uh, and a communication and an exchange that is, um, in the case of the ATM machine, hopefully very predictable and prescribed. And in the case of the video game, instead, is following some rules, but is also open-ended. So to me, that's eternally fascinating. So is there something really special about how game designers encourage players to do the exact same thing? I think of like Super Mario Brothers, for example. Everyone who's ever played Super Mario Brothers always goes to the right. I can't think of a single person who ever tried to go to the left. There's something special, it seems like, that game makers have this unique ability to encourage people to do particular things. I would say the video game designers have a lot of power, much more power than, say, designers of an ATM machine. Video game designers have the power to instill, to manipulate, and to condition people for good and for bad. You know, I mean, let's be frank. You know, there are so many discussions that are happening right now about educational video games and so many discussions that are happening about video games that instead really suggest a very evil and deviant behavior. So I think the power is what it's about and uh, the fact that they can really reach into people's lives and take them for a ride. And it depends on the kind of ride. Absolutely. Well, Paula, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jamin. Thank you. Uh, anything for you, always. That's it. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe when you get a chance. Like maybe right now. I'll wait. Have an awesome day. <laughs>